So thanks for being here. Um, I'm really, uh, well, I say this every month. I'm very excited about this month's, a um, little bit more of an emphasis on the marketplace and some of the struggles we have there. Um, and this, this month has really been born out of the fact that uh, I get to have long, deep, interesting conversations with both Chad and Allison about stuff that I think needs to be heard uh, by people in the congregation, and I'm just hoping that we can share some of that uh, tonight. So if you could welcome Chad and Allison up. And as they're coming up, thanks for, uh, oh yeah, grab a mic. Thanks for being concerned about my health. I'm I'm, I'm feeling better, just uh, it don't necessarily sound that much better yet, but I am feeling much better. So I ran yesterday morning, if that gives you any indication of how I feel. So that's good. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Cool. All right. So uh, we're going to start like I, we normally do. Chad has all kinds of notes. That's cool. We're going to start like we normally And Allison has her Bible. That is about... That's generally how it goes, yeah. Okay, so first I want to start by just um, having you introduce yourselves to the, uh, the people here. Let them know a little bit more about you than maybe they know. Uh, we'll start with you, Allison. Tell us about your family. You have four kids and all different ages and stages, and uh, you have a husband who thinks he's pretty cool and all that stuff. So anyway, tell us about that and how long you've been at Redemption. You should be on. Oh, we need batteries. Yeah, she, seriously. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm Allison, and let's see. I think I'll start back. So I was originally born in Colorado, but my dad was an entrepreneur and moved us here in junior high, which is when I met that handsome man right there. Um, <laughs> we were 13, and I had braces, <laughs> which he doesn't remember. But we were really good friends and um, stayed friends through high school, but did not date. Sean asked me out maybe between sophomore, junior year, and I said, no, I don't date friends because I was just this really smart person. I wanted to date strangers. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and so it was, we, we were good friends. We went to college uh, across the country from each other. I went to U of A. He went to the Naval Academy. And it was in college where I, um, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I had been raised in a home that, I mean, I'm 50, so I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. And I would say in America, you were Christian or Catholic. Like, that's just what you were. So I would have said I was Christian. And we went to a lot of different churches because um, my parents did not have the same belief systems. And so we would jump from church to church, and I have gone to probably almost every denomination that's out there, had a lot of head knowledge, and I would say I was definitely someone that from as young as I can remember knew God existed. Um, but I did not want to yield to God at all, but I had a lot of knowledge and felt like I knew the Bible, and I, I even then would always carry a Bible with me and liked it. And it was in college where... Um, I was a biology major, and I had a summer class down in Mexico um, with a bunch of grad students, and they were all staunch atheists and made fun of me for bringing a Bible and calling myself a Christian. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a culture where there was no one that identified with the idea of God even. And that is when God really broke in 
to my worldview. And I just felt him say to me, I don't want you playing a game anymore. You choose me or you choose the world, but not both. And so I yielded to Christ. And I bring that up because it was after that um, that all this knowledge I had really started to actually unravel me in a sense. But God was gracious, and he actually brought Sean back into my life at that time. And what came with Sean was his mother. And I want to bring her up because she, um, she was the biggest influence in my life, a very godly woman. She'd been my home ec teacher. She took me in to live with them for a year, so I got to see what it's like to be in a Christian family the year before we got married, um, and was a woman that just kept pointing me to Jesus and how much he loved me, and um, no matter what I came from, he had a plan and purpose in it, and she would just always encourage that, and I'm really glad about that because I am a person that's a planner, and I like to kind of tell God what would be a good idea and then start acting out my idea. And even if he closes doors, I keep trying to act out what I want. And he has a good sense of humor. So we got married and went on our honeymoon. And about two months after our honeymoon, I was not feeling well. And my husband says, I think you're pregnant. And I said, I'm not pregnant because I'm studying to go to medical school and I can't be pregnant because that's not in my plan. He said, well, you've been sick <laughs> now for a couple months. I'm like, it's Montezuma's Revenge. We went to Mexico. Um, and he said, no, you should go get a test. I think you're pregnant. And I was. And that's the first time God, like, stepped in and said, how about my plan? And led to, we had three children in four years. Um, and I, he was in the Navy. And so we moved a lot. Um, and then after... How many, we just, you served night, well, 20 years total. We moved 13 times in 20 years. Um, our fourth child was adopted in 2002. And we moved here um, when Sean retired. And that was a time where I feel like God was kind of doing the most in my life because he stripped me of so much, um, but then showed up in a way that I would never ex have expected. And so I know I'm kind of making this more a testimony thing, but it's, I think the most important thing to understand about me is, um, while I love so much the life God has given me, what I love the most is the patience he has had with me, because I am a pretty hard-headed person, and um, he's just been very gracious and has proved to me over and over again how good he is. So I could list to you all these cool experiences and my wonderful children and the two grandkids I have now. They are all good things, but more importantly, I just know that God is so good. And so I'm hoping that that's um, what comes out tonight because that's really what I spoke the most, will speak the most from is who he has shown me to be through really exciting and wonderful things, but also through hard things. You described Sean as retired. I, I'm sorry, retired from the Navy. He now okay, works for Boeing. Okay, because he works more hours than I do. Yeah. Yeah, when you can retire from the pastor, Navy after 20 week, years, but. and then he got hired by Boeing after we moved here. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I, you said something about the doors closing, and you would still... Okay. Uh, for I, you, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Uh, I... There's a lot of good stuff on there, but you have to weed through all the, the, the excrement, I guess, would be the way to say it. Um, 
this just showed up on my feed yesterday, and I had to retweet it. Uh, it's from a guy named Joel Nobis. He said this, I'm slowly learning to love the sound of doors closing that were never meant for me to walk through. What used to echo disappointment is beginning to sound a lot like grace to me. Isn't that good? Yeah, yeah so anyway, so Chad, your turn. Um, so usually when I meet people for the first time, I'll say, uh, <coughs> born and raised in Arizona, and my family has been in the state on both sides for four generations. So we've been in Arizona before statehood. In fact, my grandfathers were good friends with each other, and uh, when they were young men, they would go to um, Oak Creek Canyon, they'd go swimming and hanging out when they were like in their, I think, late teens, early 20s. They were down there and got done swimming and it was a hot day and they, they see this truck that had cigarettes on the dash and they're like, oh man, that's, that would be perfect for us. So they go up to this dashboard and pull out the cigarettes and they start smoking it and then they hear this, as, as they would describe it, they heard this voice behind them that said, boys, do you know whose cigarettes those are? And they turn, they look up and they see this like domineering figure eclipsing the sun and it was John Wayne. And they said, we're sorry, Mr. Wayne, and they proceeded to put the rest of the cigarettes back in, uh, on the dashboard. And so I got to say that my grandfathers stole John Wayne's cigarettes. Um, but um, uh, born and raised in, in Phoenix, uh, amazing parents, amazing siblings, and um, at, at a young age had sort of a strange interest and curiosity. And like you, Allison, had always always knew about God, but from a young age, I wanted to, to know and have a relationship with, with the Lord. And so um, when I could read, I, um, you know, I had questions that I would engage my mom in about, you know, spirituality and God. And so naturally, as a six-year-old, I went to the book of Revelation. And uh, I was more <laughs> studied in Godzilla than I was metaphor. So I read about six-headed monsters coming out of the ocean to destroy all things. And I was like, wow, this, is, this fits my young, you know, prepubescent imagination as a young boy that everything's going to be destroyed by a monster. <laughs> And I was horrified, and I asked my mom, I was like, what, what does all of this mean? I, I was really curious and interested. I have a vivid ima imagination. In fact, watching Godzilla <laughs> films as a little kid, I remember us going to a, a Benihana, and it was the first time I saw a Japanese person, I, and I was, I was like, D can you tell me about Godzilla? Do, do you know? And he's like, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know anything about this. Um, I was kind of a spiritually neurotic kid, uh, because I didn't understand metaphor, but I really wanted to know God, and I was really disturbed by some of the things that I was, I was reading, and so um, I was obsessed with the end times. As, I don't know if I've shared any of this with you. I was obsessed with the end times as like a 12-year-old, so I was on a basketball team, and I would love to go to um, like Mark of the Beast conferences and end-of-the-world conferences that were being held, because I wanted to know who has the answers to these things, and so of all things, it was at this conference where the theology was just terrible. You could almost say it was a false prophet that was teaching some of these things, but he talked about meeting Jesus, and I was so captivated by the thought of meeting the Lord, and that's, that's where I accepted the Lord, was at a Mark of the Beast conference, of all things. <laughs> wow! And um, it was during that time in my formative years where um, I just, I had, a, I had a real passion for creativity, for, for storytelling, and had a lot of different interests in that, and my parents were amazing. They, they had always supported and encouraged me in that. In fact, when my siblings and I, we get together, we talk about our parents, we say, you know, they, they always believed and supported anything that we ever wanted to do and continue to do this day, you know, 
dream big, take risks, step out there. And so I remember when I was a kid, my dad took, took me and, and my sister and my mom and I to go see Paul McCartney when I was eight years old. And uh, they're like, you need to take a nap this afternoon because you need to be well-rested to see Sir Paul McCartney tonight. And so um, uh, growing up, uh, my dad and I, we would, I had an interest in film. And I remember he took me to see a, a, a Ren and Stimpy like animation conference that was in town. And, and we would talk about REM. And for me, culture and whether it was film or art or any of these things, they were always celebrated and open to discussion. And it, it, was, um, it was very similar to how Francis Schaeffer talked about the Beatles. And he would say, you know, so often Christians might not want to have anything to do with the Beatles. He said, but what, what are things that they say and produce that are actually true, that are good, that are beautiful? So culture was something growing up that there was a lot of just healthy, engaged curiosity that was really cultivated in me. And so um, at, a, at a young age, I felt like, I think this is how I want to spend uh, the rest of my life. And so um, I, went to, I went to film school um, and studied at New York University and studied in their film program and then was, was beginning to be involved with thinking through, okay, how do you as a Christian think about creating and being involved in, in the marketplace and in culture in really meaningful ways? What does that look like? What do you do? And, and since that time, there's never been any easy answers to that. Um, but we began to, we, there was a group of us that, that got together with Campus Crusade. We, we started this little arts group for, um, for college students. And then after that, I came back to the Valley and taught filmmaking at the college level for a number of years and worked on a number of um, uh, really interesting projects. One of those was we, we partnered with the city of Phoenix to create a feature documentary on sex trafficking um, in Phoenix. Um, and that was really interesting to, to begin to further that dialogue. Okay, what, what, is, what does this mean to, to, to do this thing? And so um, long story short is I ended up um, currently work um, as a creative director at a, at a nonprofit called Alliance Defending Freedom where we help to tell stories of our clients. Um, ADF, if you don't know, does uh, legal advocacy work for religious freedom. Uh, most recently, I met the love of my life, Melissa, and uh, I recently got married about six months ago. So uh, Frank officiated our wedding. It's a really amazing day. And it, it's been amazing to, to discover and to rediscover, really for me, when I begin to think about what does it mean to have a meaningful engagement and impact in the marketplace, for me it starts with relationship. And that began with my parents and my siblings and my family and has continued to stay to my, to my wife. And, and seeing how I think the core of what we do in terms of how we think about and how we engage in the marketplace, I think, starts there. Okay, so um, since you went there, you know, I have my list of questions, um, but I'm going to go out of order now. I, I didn't tell you what the order was going to be anyway, so it doesn't matter, but I have to tell myself now. You're out of order, Frank, but uh, since you already went there, you, you and I have talked... Can we, to, can we say step off, George, like yes, Seinfeld? Okay, step yeah, off, Frank. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, we share a lot of, a lot of Seinfeld, Seinfeld references. Stuff, so. He's a young person who likes Seinfeld, so that's good stuff. Um, so you and I have talked about um, Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud. He talks about um, what kind of wakes are you leaving in the marketplace, in, in your life, in your family. In other words, as, as you're moving through the marketplace, as you're moving through relationships, what's going on behind you? What's going on in the wake? Um, is there turmoil? Is there, is there peace? 
is there tension? Is there understanding? Is, there, is it constructive? Is it destructive? So talk a little bit more about that because you went right at relationships sure. and the importance of that. So, Yeah, um, so a lot of my examples probably will come from, from film because that's, that's my background and my training and, and a lot of what I do. Um, there's, a, there's a film that came out a few years ago about Steve Jobs, titled Steve Jobs. It's, it's, it's an incredible film. And there was a moment in the movie um, where his head of marketing says to him, she, she's challenging him, and she's been challenging him throughout the course of this entire film, and she says, I love you, Steve. You know how much. I love that you don't care how much money a person makes. You care what they make. But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father, that's what's supposed to be the best part of you. And there's this whole dialogue, this whole theme that happens in this story about greatness, greatness in the marketplace. Do you have to be a jerk to be great? Do you have to push people over to be great? And he gets challenged by Steve Wozniak in the film, and Steve Wozniak says, you know, Steve, you can be decent and you can be great. And this marketing director character kind of challenges him on the same thing. And, and she makes an interesting statement here, which I wonder if it's, if it's almost missing something, because um, what, what Henry Cloud says in his book, um, Henry Cloud is a, a Christian psychiatrist, um, a leadership counselor, and he says that any time that we, we, we do work, whether it's in a company, um, in interactions with clients, consultants, what have you, is that we create a wake, and that wake has two parts to it. It's the work that we do, and it's how we relate to people. And he says, more often than not, especially in our culture, we concentrate on the product, right? We want an excellent product, and it may or may not hurt people in the process, but that's not really what's of most, most importance. He says, what we need to aspire to, the ideal is, we need to aspire to, to, to a great product, right? Which is where I think that this character in Steve Jobs almost gets it wrong, right? Because we are, God did create us for good works, as it says in Ephesians, but relationships matter. And so I think that's the tension, right? Is that we're, we're created for good works. We're created to, to make and, and, and contribute good things to society, but we're also created for relationships. So we live in that tension all the time. And it's, it's really hard. I think it's the ideal, but I think it's what we should aspire to. Well, in fact, um, w when we talk about the fact that we're created in the image of God, that's been debated for literally centuries. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And um, as I've studied it, I believe the answer is right there in all of the creation narratives. We were created for relationship because God is in relationship, and we were created to work because God worked for six days. So you just said it. It's, it's work in relationships, how, and that's our best image bearing is through those two things, but how do those things work together? And that's the tension, and that's part of the wrestle. So Allison is the director of our communities and relationships, gospel-centered relationships here at um, Redemption Arcadia. And let me just tell you a little, she's, you've been on staff now a little over a year, right? A year and a half maybe? Um, so, but you've been at Redemption for eight or nine years, something like that. Eight years. Eight years. Um, and it was funny because uh, I, I have to tell this, mention this about Allison. Um, the pastors, Tyler and Cody and myself, were sitting around talking about how we really need somebody in charge of, of the, the uh, RCs, the redemption communities, and more importantly, just let that be a part of gospel-centered relationships. Um, who should that be? 
And all of us wrote down Allison to Serafino. <laughs> and we had no idea if she would be willing to take this job. And so then I met with her. Cody and I met with you, actually, and started talking to you about it. And we found out that you had worked at a church before, too, in Maryland, right? So this was right in your wheelhouse. Anyway, so you're a relationship guru. So kind of... kind of. Yeah, well, we think you are. So okay. anyway, kind of dovetail on what, on what um, Chad is talking about. So sure. relationships are important in the workplace, but, but also in our faith community. How does that relate? How does that, how does that dovetail together? Sure. Um, well, and you hit on it, but I do think it's something we shouldn't gloss over is that we're not in a religion um, or, you know, uh, working on understanding a perspective. God is relational, and he... He called us into relationship. He came in human form and walked among us. And um, it's just that's the way he works is by knowing us and us being known to him um, and us being able to know him, but also knowing each other. And he is not a God of isolation. And I think I, I do have a natural disposition of I like people. And I find people very interesting. I love, 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 love to travel. And half of what I love about it is people watching now, I have to admit, I sit there and make up stories about everything that's going on, but um, just I find people very, very interesting. But a big thing that I've grown in um, as I've just gotten to know the Lord more personally is seeing people as being image bearers of God. Um, an aha moment for me that probably made sense to everybody else was that being in his image means that we naturally will have some good and truth in us. Now, it is marred by sin. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not being theologically nuts there. But I shouldn't be surprised when I meet someone that is very gifted um, or clever and intelligent, but is not a believer. But my worldview before would have been like, well, if you add God, then you get to perfection. That that's where goodness would come from. Instead of recognizing that, no, by being an image bearer, you're bearing the image of what is whole and what is true. And so it's caused me to want to dig into relationship even more to help those people then know God so that what they have been gifted with is now for his glory and for his flourishing. Um, and so it's a challenge because it's messy you've got a very imperfect person myself interacting with other imperfect people but the unique thing about it being gospel centered is that our dependency becomes on God not on each other and each other's abilities and it's a it is a gift we have that I don't think we recognize in the church is that God takes diversity and unifies us for glorifying him he doesn't make us into robots that all look alike and so that's been a big heartbeat of mine, um, having lived in so many places in a couple other countries. Interacting with other believers is an incredible thing to see the common joy that he gives, the common burden he gives us, um, the love for his word and the love for one another, but also a love for the community that can only come out of his spirit is moving around the world. And so it's encouraged me to just try to get to slow down a little and get to know people um, and help them engage with each other, but not just for the sake of a horizontal relationship. It's to tie it into that vertical um, because that's where not only the flourishing happens, but the peace. You know, you've got incredible people like a Steve Jobs. Y yeah, being a father is very, very important, but if you're not tied into your heavenly father, 
you're missing the biggest piece of it. And so that's a challenge for myself, um, is I want to continually be tied into Jesus and knowing him and um, having him teach me more about who he is, because it makes my relationships much richer, but it also helps me enrich other people so much more. So what, one of the things you said reminded me of, uh, you told me about a TED Talk uh, that Andrew Stanton did. It's one of my favorite TED Talks. I show it to all my communication classes, but in that talk, he talks about um, how Mr. Rogers always carried around in his wallet that quote from a social worker who said, um, I don't think there isn't anybody in the world that you couldn't learn to love if you were able to hear their story. And that's what relationship is all about. And, and you talking about that made me think about that. So, but then, then you have relationships and you have work. And because we're imperfect, because we're marred by sin, it creates something called fear. And that's one of the biggest conversations that you and I have about the workplace. We've talked about people like Brene Brown and um, vulnerability and scarcity and Lynn Twist and her notion of scarcity um, and how... Uh, fear can be such a destructive force in our lives, in the marketplace, uh, but it can also be an incentive uh, for good health and, and construction. So just start to noodle on that a little bit, the idea of fear in the marketplace and what it does with us and for us. Yeah, I mean, I think looking at Scripture, um, fear is a topic that is addressed maybe one of, maybe one of the primary themes um, because as humans, we know that life here on earth can be wildly unpredictable. It can be hard. It can be painful and excruciating. And so the net result of that can be, well, I've got to, I have to take care of myself. No one's going to look after me. No one's going to look after my interests. It ultimately comes down to me. And so we begin to build a value system of self-sufficiency, um, and that could turn into self-elevation, and then the net result of that is self-sabotage. And so I think where that, where that permeates and plays itself out in the marketplace um, is a notion that if, if, if it's really up to me, and if I'm really on my own, if there's really no one intrinsically looking after me, I may have family and friends, but, but those are effectively mere mortals, then, then I have to be the one effectively to control my destiny. It's that Invictus quote, I am captain of my fate, I am captain of my destiny. But what's interesting is the Christian story offers a unique window into looking at the world, and that is one of intimacy, right? Uh, Tim Keller had, had posed this question. He said, when you look at the creation myths or you look at various stories from religions and, and world philosophies and world thinking, what is at the core of, of many of those? And often what you'll find is power, right? Many of the, many of the ancient creation stories and myths is this idea that work really isn't a good thing. The gods need to give those to the lesser, the lesser mortals, the humans, and they have to steward creation because we really don't want to do that. But as Keller says, God gets in the mud effectively in working, and that the, the, the heart of the Christian story is intimacy. When you think about God creating the world, oftentimes what you'll do, what you'll imagine is maybe something like Mickey and Fantasia where he's kind of coldly directing the cosmos into being. He said, that is, not, that is not the creation story. He says, the creation story is the most intimate display that you can imagine. So, um, you know, when you think about a mother breastfeeding her child, or 
um, two people making love. He said, that's what happened at creation. It was that level of intimacy because the creation story is one of great intimacy because we don't believe that the universe is a God, one God, but it's the triune God. It's a community. So it's built out of, it's built for relationship. So when Michael Scott in the office said, you know, business is personal, of course business is personal. It's the most personal thing in the world. In a sense, he was kind of right, right? Because we were made for, we were made for connection. We were made for intimacy. So what we make and create is deeply personal. It was deeply personal to God. So when we go to make things and engage in that, it's always going to be at some level deeply personal. So we enter into this world, and we know intrinsically that we're, we're made to do things, right? It's, it's why, why is it that um, certain things make you come alive? You just know deep down within yourself you were made to do this. You were born to do this, and then you meet futility and frustration to some degree in the marketplace, and then failure yeah. shows itself up. So what often is our, our, our way of coping with that? Well, it's, it's out of fear. Am I going to be able to do this thing? Am I going to have to look after myself? And that's, that's sort of the competing narrative that we wrestle with all the time. But the interesting thing about fear is it starts to, it can illuminate us to um, a more helpful path and a more meaningful destiny. So I'll, I'll kind of stop there. But. Well, um, employers worry about making payroll but the people on the payroll worry about making their nut in their home. So it, there's this continuous cycle of all of that going on. And, and your comment about, um, of all the creation stories, and I've been sp spending a lot of time lately doing this because we're doing a thing in Genesis in June, but of all the creation stories, you're right, uh, the biblical creation story is the only one that actually does get down into the muck and the mud with the human beings in, in Genesis 2. It says that God formed the man out of dust and then breathed life into him. That's very much like um, breastfeeding a baby. That's like making love. That's a really act, it's, it's a, an incredible act of intimacy instead of all these other creation stories where something was broken and that's how human beings were made, essentially. And so uh, I hear what you're saying there. So um, we talk about um, this this challenge of having to go out and having to make something that will, will, will create cash flow uh, because we're afraid of scarcity, right? And there's other scarcities too. There's a scarcity of significance, scarcity of power, scarcity of status. But the number one scarcity seems to be, am I going to be able to make my nut? So we have to be able to make something. We have to be able to sell something. But the only way we can do that is if we're involved in relationships. And so that becomes the challenge, and that becomes, um, um, in other words, the godfather was wrong when they said it's not, it's not personal, it's strictly business. They were wrong. Michael Scott was actually right. Michael Scott was right. That's right. So there you go. All right. So in that, in that sense, when we talked about scarcity and, and some of the stuff that uh, Brene Brown talks about, how did that affect you? Because you lit up, I remember, during that conversation. Sure. So first of all, I do watch TV and movies. I just never remember quotes. So nothing pithy for okay. me there. Or I'll, I'll attribute it to the wrong person. <laughs> I'm the queen of that. But um, yeah, no, it, it lit up to me because this is not unique to the marketplace. I would say this is unique um, to being a human being. I mean, we, we were made to fear, but we were made to fear God. We were meant to be humble before him and in this partnership with him. 
Um, instead, though, what we end up fearing is people and things and identity, you know, loss of identity, like you said. So when you were talking about the scarcity, um, yeah, I did lead up because I think one of the things that God has taught me the most is that he, he is a jealous God, so he will not let me make him in my own image. And a lot of my fears of scarcity come from me trying to have God meet the needs I believe are the pressing needs. I have a fear, and therefore I have an idea of how God needs to meet this need and turn it out. And he will not. He is true to who he is. And the way it often will come out is in relationships, a brokenness um, in that relationship. And if you're anything like me, you'll then... Uh, read books about maybe whatever this issue is, thinking about how to fix that person. <laughs> or you'll listen to a sermon and be thinking about, yes, if only so-and-so could listen to this, everything would be fine. Um, and what I have learned is that God is speaking to me and revealing to me that it's actually in brokenness that the fear, it, we see what it is and that we're fearing man instead of fearing God that we can actually empty ourselves um, and be willing to risk and enter into broken relationships. And it really, you don't come in then suddenly, oh, I can solve everything and it's all perfect. The brokenness stays there. The difference is I'm not getting my worth out of result that's dependent on me. You're literally learning how to just walk with someone, pointing them to something that is worth worshiping, and that is God. And so I think what hit me the most about the scarcity thing is we're going to always feel a sense of scarcity when we're worshiping something other than the true God. And so not to be afraid of it, but to have honest relationships with one another um, about where this fear is coming from and then how God wants to step into there, how that fear is actually a part of what is driving us towards dependency on him. But it also drives us towards relationship with each other because I'm not looking for all the answers to be in myself or in something I'm involved in. Um, I really want to just walk with another person in that dailiness. So, so in the midst of that, um, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I, I think, um, um, you know, if... If it's true, if the Christian story is one that the core of our existence is we're meant for relationship, we're meant for complete trust and vulnerability and intimacy, we all know, we look around the world, we look at our own lives, that's not the case. And sadly, that's not the case a lot of times. And so I think what ends up happening is, um, and what was introduced at the beginning of, story, of, of our story was fear. We, we, we discovered shame, and that's something that we've, we've carried on to this day. And so because that's an ever-present part of our existence, the shame of, I know something's wrong inherently with this world. I know something is inherently wrong with me to varying degrees. And we struggle with that. And we wonder and we become fearful of, you know, are things going to be okay? That's ultimately the question that we want to know, I think, in life. Am I going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay? Are we going to be okay not just in this life, but potentially what's to come? Are we going to be okay? And so I think what happens is if we don't, if we don't live from a place of knowing and a deep-rooted sense of who we are that there is a benevolent Father that's caring for us, that's looking after us, then what can happen is we live from the shadow self. We live from the false self. And so we, what we end up doing is we end up constructing personas and personalities that are really built for self-protection and self-preservation because we don't 
want to go to the chaos, the unimaginable chaos and the horror of fear. And, and what if things end in ruin? And what if things really aren't okay? And so we construct a way of life and a way of living that is often very fear-based. And, and Brene Brown in her book, in her most recent book, Daring to Lead, talks about how this plays itself out in the marketplace. We put on our armor, right? We, we, have these, we have these nicely constructed fig leaves that we walk into, whether it's meetings, interactions, phone calls, seminars, responses, where I'm not gonna feel pain, um, I'm going to be in charge, or I'm going to have a sense of control when, when the reality is most of that is generally an illusion. But the irony, the tragic irony of all of that is that we don't bring our real authentic selves. And we do it a lot. I, I do it myself all the time, right? It's because a sense- we're afraid of vulnerability. We're, we're afraid to be vulnerable, yeah. right? We're afraid to do what we're actually made to do, which is to be vulnerable, to be intimate, to be connected to one another in deep trust. But we live in a world that, unfortunately, that can be really hard to do and engage in that. And so when Paul talks about the old man, the sinful nature, right? I know for me so often, for so many years, I looked at that as, oh, it's just like the bad things that I shouldn't think or I shouldn't do, right? That's, that's the old part. That's the fleshly sinful part. I think, it's, I think it's way more holistic and dimensional than that. I think it's a false self. I think it's a self that's not, that's not the, the, the most true of who we are, the most heroic, the most beautiful the most powerful and passionate and compassionate. I think that new creation that Christ talks about, that is the person, that is the man or woman that he had in mind for each of us when he made us. And so the new creation is, it's, you know, it's all of pop culture, pop psychology, your best and highest self. I think that's actually beginning to point to something that's true. And so in the marketplace, I think it's, it begins to ask the question of, how am I living from a place of fear in the decisions that I'm making? How am I being self-protected? How, how am I living out anxiety? Or am I living from a place of courage? Am I living more from a place of curiosity, from compassion, from hopefulness? I think that begins to answer the question of am I beginning to live in the imagination of the kingdom and not a worldly way that has such a very small vision and possibility for life? The can, kingdom can vision ask, is so much bigger than the world's vision. Yeah, just go ahead. Because when we were talking about this before, and we don't take it back to the very, very fundamental question is like, what is my purpose? And we talked about as Christians, if we don't understand that God is good and that's foundational, answering all these other questions, we won't be able to come to a true answer. Um, because if I don't understand God is good, then my courage is based on something else. If I don't understand that God is good and that what he's doing is for his glory and for wholeness, I mean, he is restoring and redeeming and recreating, um, then I will, I will continually miss the mark. And I will maybe want to be vulnerable, but what I'll end up doing is manipulating. And so I have found... Um, I remember the first time I was ever exposed to a catechism, and the first question is, what's the chief end of man? And it said to glorify God and, and enjoy him forever. And I just remember going home and being like, glorify God, glorify, like, what? What did that mean? And I spent a real, I mean, really a long time reading a lot of commentaries and studying in early church history and how even these catechisms came about 
And the very, very best thing I found was a kid's catechism book. And it said, the chief in a man is to glorify God and enjoy him because he's good. And that's enough to tell a child, but it's enough to tell each other too. This stems out of that God is very, very, very good. And I have found that's radically changed how fear is combated in my life, but also how I am able to step into relationships. Um, because knowing that my God is good, I am more courageous to risk, lay down my life for someone. I'm also more willing to take help and ask for it and grow in it. So it's not this like linear, I'm just getting stronger and better and becoming this crusader. It is just a constant being formed together and almost like we're puzzle pieces that I'm matching with all these other people. But a puzzle piece, one isn't more important than the other. I know people that do puzzles, you like the corners. But that's just for convention. <laughs> that's like not more important. They all fit together. And I've really tried to approach um, being vulnerable as how do I fit into this person's life? They need to not see, oh, Allison's got it all together, therefore I wanna be like Allison. Nor should I look for people to be like, I wanna grow up and be just like Anne. I do, Anne. But, <laughs> but really, it should be they look and they're like, she loves Jesus. I can love Jesus because I share the same brokenness. And I see God is changing her. And I mean, I think we need to capture that in everything that we're not trying to be an example to a person to be like us. We're trying to show them a Jesus that is perfect, and he is good, and he can transform. But we got to do that together. It is just something that we're doing. It's like a dance. I like to dance. So it's like a dance where he is the lead, um, but we're following with, and it's a beautiful thing, and we start to fall into a rhythm. Um, so, like, not to make it overstory, and like, but... Um, it is a true happy ending because he's good. <laughs> like we really do have something to point people to um, and that makes us more courageous and more willing to step in. So it just, to back that up, let's keep in mind the foundation of this is we're not coming out of our own worth um, and our own ideas. We're coming from the very foundation of a God who is good. And that is what he said about creation. He entered in, he interacted, he said it is good and I'm partnering with you in it. He did not leave us in that. It's so, really good. Do you, do you mind if I can't jump in? So what? Do you mind if I jump in? No, go ahead. So, we, yes, no, that's, no, the, no. That, that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, I that made me think of um, this past year. Um, uh, as my my poor wife can attest, I've obsessively watched this same documentary over and over and over. Uh, my sister will often joke in our family, we can have repeater's disease with things, or we just like to kind of repeat the same joke or idea or movie or something. And um, I've, I've been watching this documentary about the life of Walt Disney. He's, he's been one of my heroes. And when I was a kid, we went to Disneyland for the second time when I was like 12. And I remember thinking, who gets to work here and design these rides? That would be the most incredible job. <laughs> and so I've always been fascinated with his life. And PBS did this documentary, an American Life series on the life of Walt Disney, and um, it's really compelling. And, and I had my team um, watch it together because I said, this, th there's some really interesting themes and things that are going on with this guy's life. And I work with a team of creative professionals who are, who are believers, and I said, I'd love for us to just talk through this. What, what could we learn from this guy's life? You know, what, what are the strengths and the weaknesses? What are life lessons here? And it was interesting, in the first part of the documentary, they said that Disney... Uh, was so driven 
he was this guy from the Midwest who grew up in really tough circumstances. He was so driven to, as they called it back then, make a name for himself. Um, he, he didn't really get the support of his, of his parents. He had a really tough relationship with his dad. Um, unlike the relationship I had with my father, who was so encouraging and supportive, Disney had the complete opposite of that. And so he, he was really driven to do that, and he largely succeeded. But what often is said of Disney, too, is that he was a mercurial figure that um, really struggled and wanted the praise and adoration of a lot of people. And so it was interesting entering into that discussion with them and talking through some of that. Um, and what it made me think of is before Jesus began his public work, his public ministry, God pronounced a blessing and a benediction over him. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't, he hadn't you know, communicated any, any real sermons. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't raised anyone from the dead. And yet God, as he's being baptized, says, that's my boy. That is my son. I treasure him above all things. And all could hear the father's esteem over that. Before he entered into his work, he knew who he was. He knew who he was. He belonged to God. He was God's son. It wasn't about the mission, ultimately. It was about his relationship with his father. Everything that he did came out of that. He worked from that place. And I think that we all strive to know, am I the beloved son? Am I the beloved daughter? If we don't have an answer to that question, is there someone in whom I am well pleased? We're going to search for that. We may endeavor to do it as successfully as Disney did, not to oversimplify the man's life, but we're all searching for it. We're all looking for it. And if we don't find it, if we don't find it in a benevolent father, we're going to look to find it in other places. And, and you talked about how in that search, we often end up with something that's a shadow of ourself. You talked about how if we're going to have courage, we can have courage because God is good, not because we can just well up courage in ourselves. Um, and so that kind of leads me to that. It, it, Stephen Pressfield has a, has a quote Pressfield, about yeah. it. Is it Pressfield? Yeah. Okay. You want to hit on that? Yeah, I think sure. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of, of Stephen Pressfield. He wrote uh, the novel The Legend of Bagger Vance. He's written books um, on the war of, uh, called The War of Art. He talks about this whole idea of resistance when you seek to do something, anything, whether it's start a business, enter into a relationship, write a symphony, make a painting, you're going to encounter resistance. It's, it's going to meet you. It's the same feeling like when you go to the gym and you get there and you're like, oh, this is the last place that I want to be. He said, any time <laughs> you seek to create, you, you find you're going to run up against resistance. Now, I don't know if, if Stephen Pressfield believes in Jesus, but he definitely believes in God. And he says that because of the demands of resistance, because that's ever present in us, and because when we start to do the thing that we know we're made to do, we encounter, of all things, fear. Fear is right there. You're not good enough. You should put this off. Someone's better than you. You shouldn't do this. All kinds of voices in our head telling us you shouldn't or you can't or why would anyone ever take you seriously. So we end up doing what he calls we pursue shadow careers or shadow work or shadow callings. He says, sometimes when we're terrified of embracing our true calling, we'll pursue a shadow calling instead. That shadow career is a metaphor for our real career. Its shape is similar. Its contours feel tantalizing the same. But a shadow career entails no real risk. If we fail at a shadow career, the consequences are meaningless to us. Are you pursuing a shadow career? Are you afraid you're getting your, P are you getting your PhD in Elizabethan studies, 
because you're afraid to write the tragedies and comedies that you know you have inside you? Are you working in a support capacity for an innovator because you're afraid to risk becoming an innovator yourself? If you're dissatisfied with your current life, ask yourself what your current life is a metaphor for. That metaphor will point you toward your true calling. And that could be, are you pursuing a vice presidency role because you feel like you're going to have significance as opposed to maybe you'd be more satisfied doing fill in the blank. That's really good. So the problem though is that work is hard. Could we all agree on that? Work's really hard, right? You don't know if you're going to be successful. People get in the way. They're a problem. We're not the problem. The other people are the problem. And it's a mess. But um, haven't you ever worked through something that was really hard and you didn't know if you were going to make it and then, and then it worked and it, and it turned out even better than you expected and you got to celebrate that? Okay, so... Uh, you brought this up to me also. You're figuring out that I get a lot of my stuff just from people like Chad and Allison by having coffee with them. That's why I have coffee with so many people. Um, Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Um, n- notice what it says in the first half of that verse, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. So I'm a type A person. I like a clean manger, okay? But a clean manger is not productive, right? And, and it, the second part of that verse is, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. That, that, that's a bit of a double entendre. The strength of the ox is because it can work, but also the strength of the ox comes from the excrement, right? You, you got to have, I'm sorry, you got to have the crap if you're going to have a crop, Okay? Are, are you okay with that? Do you understand that? I mean, if, if you're going to have a crop, if you're not going to do your shadow self, you've you got to get down there and get dirty. So talk a little bit about that and what, what motivated you to bring that up. And I'm sure Allison's going to have something to say about that, maybe my language or maybe something in principle, okay? Yeah. Um, I, th- I, think that, um, I think the Bible is, is so counterintuitive with how it approaches every dimension of life. Um, and so paradoxical, right? Like we, we have, all of us have all kinds of, whether it's annoyances, frustrations, or significant, real, difficult, traumatic even problems that exist in our life. Uh, and then when we enter into the workforce, um, how many times have you had a conversation whether it's with your spouse, a loved one, a child, a friend, just going, you would not believe the crap I had to endure today. You would not believe all the stuff that went on. And whether it's, it's in relationship or a deadline was missed or a, um, something didn't come through on a payment or a buyer, any number of things, we're all going to get up tomorrow morning and most of us go to work and we're going to run into some kind of real challenge and difficulty. And it feels like we're walking through a field full of manure. And often we want to go, I just want to just shovel and get this stuff out of the way. And it never seems to go <laughs> away. It's always there. So I, I grew up as, a great, as the grandson of, of farmers, right? And, um, you know, to harvest a field, and you need, you need a lot of manure. You need a lot of manure. The irony of that is that's where you get life. And so, so often, I know it's me especially, I'm, I'm type A as well, is 
I want to get my shovel out and get rid of the crap as quickly as possible in all dimensions of the work life. And yet, when I wake up every morning, the ox has produced a new load for me to shovel to clean up. <laughs> and the irony is we think, I naively, I naively thought, I thought, you know, before I get married, we're going to have two of us. It's going to make it easier, so I have less work to do. That was one of the things I thought. I don't think I ever shared that with you, babe. <coughs> The fascinating thing is I've quickly discovered is that the more you add to your life, as my siblings will tell you with children, as my parents will tell you, as those of you that have kids know, the more people that you have under you that, that are working for you, the more the problems increase. And sometimes that can feel like the greater that excrement pile has grown in your life. It seems like that never goes away. And that's how beautifully realistic and candid the Bible is, is they're like, listen, uh, the oxen is always going to produce what you don't like, and that's just reality. However, that is where life is found. That is where life is found because what happens is when we start to engage in the quote-unquote messiness of life and we get dirty and we shovel, we start to discover well, we were made for this, and we start to flourish in this. In the Genesis account, when God made the world, right, we can think of God as like the micromanager. He sets things in order in this neat creation. I used to think of as, as a kid, the creation story, like the Garden of Eden was like a putt-putt golf course. It was AstroTurf. It had the white painted up on the trees so there were no insects. It was like perfectly manicured. It was just, it was almost, it was almost clinical in a way, right? It was like a putt-putt golf course. There, there was no problems. It was kind of like Disneyland in a way. It was just perfectly taken care of and clean. Andy Crouch talks about when God made the world, it was teeming with life, meaning that it was like vibrant and alive and passionate, and there was all kinds of sounds and noise and life and color. That was the world that God created. That's the world that still exists, and God was not a micromanager. He invited Adam and Eve. He said, be co-collaborators with me. I'm going to show you how to make this. Spend the rest of your lives. We're going to collaborate together. We're going to work together, but it's going to be a mess. And that's how I've rigged this whole thing. That's how I've designed it. So you, you sent me along with that, that um, verse, this quote. I'm not sure who it's from, but um, it's, it's this quote right here. You want to read that for them? That goes along oh, with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, this, yeah. there's this great blog that talks about this. Um, from my marriage to parenting, from my closest relationship to my vocation, every realm where God is at work is teeming with life and excrement. So it's, it's interesting, but when we start to look at our lives like that, not that this has to go away, but this is actually where life is found. The more of this, the more abundant the harvest is, it starts to reorient and I think reshape how we think about our lives. Talk a little bit about that, Allison. So when, when this email first came with excrement highlighted, <laughs> first thing I thought, mother of two boys, men never stop talking about poop. <laughs> like, what is this, right? Um, but we're in Arcadia, so we repackage it and make it locally sourced, and then it's, you know, something we all want. So, um, but no, seriously, it, I was like, yeah, this isn't just, yes, you deal with crap in relationships and at work and stuff, but what hits me the hardest is that in my Christian walk is the one place I don't think there should be anything wrong. Like, I just want God, you know, that old January 1st rolls around, Lord, this year I'd like to be patient. And I want to learn it without any trials. You know, I, I don't want any crap in my life. And one thing that um, it really made me think about is, you know, what's unique about having the Holy Spirit indwell us is not that there's no excrement. 
it is that we now have the power to fight sin. Beforehand, you just had these piles building up. I mean, they, that is just oh, you. Yeah. It was your nature. It was your flesh. We now have the ability, because our, the Holy Spirit is in us, to actually combat it. And what's even more beautiful is in the same way, you know, you come from farmers. I love to garden. I'm kind of, I just, I like to get out there. I like to get in the dirt. Um, and I like to bring dirt back to life. So if you are from Phoenix or if you've just moved here and you think you couldn't grow a garden, we do have extremely poor soil unless you amend it. But once you amend it, this soil comes back to life. And I think about it in the same way that, God doesn't remove our flesh from us. Instead, what he does is he brings his spirit, and he now says, you have the power to say no, and as you say no to this, you actually, it is like we are amending the soil of our hearts. You are now becoming enriched. You now actually have something that the seed of my word can get planted in and then bear fruit. But it is not unless you struggle through those things. January 1st rolls around now. I wouldn't say I necessarily, Lord, this year I want self-control. But instead, I'm like, Lord, just keep working on me. Keep showing me where I am just trying to be plain. I'm, I'm trying to be empty. I'm not trying to fight my flesh. Um, and as he does that, I mean, it draws us again into that deeper relationship because there's a huge vulnerability there. But it's actually where I, I see the most fruit happening in my life are the areas that are complete crap-filled areas, really, that he is just saying, let me work, let me plant the seeds of truth in there and work it out. And so, again, another thing in relationship and with each other that we can really do is not try to be these whitewashed tombs and polished-looking but to try to be these people that don't make excuses for each other. That's what our culture wants to do. It wants to be like, you do you. It's how you're made. Instead, it's let's call sin, sin. Let's confess it. Let's go to the Savior. And then let's deal with it. Let's have accountability with one another. And I love that my husband, my children, and I have very close friends that they know my fears they know the things that I run to for comfort, and they'll challenge me on it and say, how are you doing with this? Um, and that's a way that we're, we're tilling the soil. We're working it. We, we're washing one another with God, you know, and his truth and his spirit in us. So I see it as actually a freedom in the Christian life is to be well-tilled gardens, you know, that he's working it all together, you know. He, he is not making us empty soil. Um, we have uh, everything we need. That's so good. It, it's such a it is such a rich metaphor, isn't it? The, the the idea of soil and that ultimately our our hearts and our lives are our soil that that we partner with in God, but that ultimately He guides and He tends to and He, and he works from. Um, you know, Jesus said, um, I've, "I've come to give you life." Right? We all want life. We're all searching for how can I have the most fulfilling, abundant life. And the Christian story is so compelling because God says, listen, I, I've made you to flourish. I've made you for human flourishing. And when you're connected with me and when you're connected with others, you will experience the greatest amount of human flourishing. In fact, the idea of being a Christian isn't about, I've got to follow these right rules and regulations. It's the most human way of living life. It's the life that leads to the greatest amount of human flourishing. And the irony of that is in this life, to, to get there, 
to, to keep experiencing more and more of that is, you know, the inverse of that with the oxen in the barn is we're going to have to, to go through a lot. But out of that, right, like how a farmer plants the soil, that's where, that's where life is found. So, so often these places in our life that we wish would go away, these annoyances, these problems, these frustrations, and the significant difficulties, the power and the beauty of the gospel is Jesus says, that is where I will meet you the most, and that's where the greatest amount of life can be found. That's awesome. So I want to ask you this question, um, each of you. So I'm going to start with you, Chad. That will give you time to think about it, Allison. But w- to, of all the questions we've, I've asked tonight, all the things we've talked about, what's the one question you wish I would have asked, or what's the one thing we haven't talked about that you would really like to talk about? Yeah, I, I think for me... I, I will tell you, I feel like in a sense, and it's been very, it's been good, but it's been difficult. I feel like we've, we've tried to jam seven years worth of conversations into tonight for them to hear, but I, I think it's been helpful. But anyway, go ahead now and answer the question. I won't interrupt you anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, so my wife and I have been going through this devotional together, and it shares different stories of, of faith throughout the centuries and, and how, how people have been, have been impacted um, in their time of prayer and, and relationship with the Lord. Um, and um, I know for me, my perspective of work is so limited. My imagination is so small so often because I think about, well, what can I accomplish? What can I self-actualize in this life? Um, and may, and you know, I'm beginning to start to think about sort of the next generation, but God's perspective on our, our work, um, whether it's in the marketplace or the home and our relationships, is generational. God thinks oh, in yeah. generations. Yeah. He thinks, he does think, in, in, and he relates to us in, in the day-to-day, of course, and in the moment, but he also thinks the fourth and the fifth and the sixth generation to come. Um, you know, I, we, we all know that we're built for significance, and we, each of us want to, to know that we've made a lasting and real impact in the lives of those around us. Um, and I think the imagination of God is one in such that I think we begin to grasp some of this. I love this quote from Andy Crouch. He says that we are not here to change the world, generally speaking. Indeed, the good news is the world has already changed in a specific and astonishing way. God's ways are not our ways. The culture he would have us make will be undoubtedly far more influential and far more marginal than our ambitions could ever fathom. Far more marginal, far more influential. It bears repeating. The good news about culture is that culture is finally not about us, but about God. I think he's absolutely right. That's really good. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he talks about it's the story of a bus ride from hell to heaven. And one of the passengers on this bus sees this old woman, and he goes, I remember her on earth. She was, she, she was someone who uh, lived in this small apartment complex. She didn't have any children to call her own. She, by any world standard, would have been completely ignored and forgotten. Yet for some reason, there is this massive celebration in her honor right now. And he said, why is that happening? What's going on here? And and the spirit from heaven said, well, don't you know? She's of one of the greatest honors here in this time in this place because of who she loved and how she loved. And that is what is most esteemed here. 
And so I think what Crouch is saying is absolutely right, is that um, we all want to have an impact, and that could mean that your call to obscurity or what may feel like obscurity for some or the rest of your life. Or you may have significant influence over vast audiences for a certain part of your life. Both equally matter, and in a sense, both don't matter, right? Because ultimately, God is the one with the imagination to best judge and weigh that influencing impact and effect. And so, um, I guess to kind of close out that thought. Um, read read the, Ed, the, the quote about Edwards. Yeah. Um, so and, and so let, 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 me, let me, you read the quote about Edwards, but I'll tell you that Schrader used to say it this way. You and I overestimate what we think we can do in a, in a day, and we underestimate what we think we can do in a decade. You see that relationship. Now, Jonathan Edwards was, is considered America's greatest theologian, and he was, I don't know if he founded Princeton Seminary, or seminary. I know he, he, was, he was president of, of, at a time. And uh, Jonathan Edwards would pay, pray for his third, fourth, and fifth descendants uh, generationally all the time. And so he said, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no way respect my own. So he was thinking with the long view in mind to people that he would never meet. And it's amazing because um, of his known descendants, there are more than 300 missionaries or ministers, 120 university professors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 college presidents, three members of Congress, and one vice president. So the truth remains bearing. The greatest work that you'll, you'll ever do, you may never see in this lifetime. And that's the whole point. Yeah, that's awesome. So Allison. Um, unasked question is more what I would say, what is the question that I am constantly challenging myself with right now? And that is, how can I finish well? So not that I'm at death's door, but you hit 50 and you're kind of like, do I have 50 more? Um, and I want to finish well. And I think one thing that has been surprising to me in life is how strong the flesh can stay. You know, you think I can just come up with all these patterns and beat things down, but you recognize how easily you will fall into relying on yourself, even if it's a very good self. And, um, Similar to C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, he has written another book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read it, I actually highly recommend listening to it. There's an amazing radio drama. It will actually probably terrify you. Don't listen to it at night. But Screwtape Letters is done very cleverly. It is from the perspective of demons being trained how to make people fail. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's beautiful about it is who they want to attack is believers to make us ineffective. And there is a section in there where it talks about the tension uh, between us loving change and permanence. And so it's a little, you, you kind of get used to the rhythm of it, but in screw tape letters, he will call God the enemy. <laughs> so anytime they refer to the enemy, he's referring to how God made us. And, and so the head demon is saying, hey, the enemy made them to desire change, but also need permanence. And if we get either one warped, then we're ineffective for God. And... Um, one thing that has hit me as, as I am growing older is I realize, so I love change. I actually loved being a Navy wife. I loved moving so much. When he wanted to, re well, I mean, you needed to retire. They kick you out of the Navy after a while. Um, but when we decided to come back here, I was like, how long? 
how long are we going to live here? I like change and I want to move. And I recognize that it's kind of this need inside of me for something new. And that can be good. I mean, it's, it's why I'll enter into different ministries and try reaching out into different areas that I'm uncomfortable with. But it shouldn't be an ends in itself. And um, there's one section, so I want to read it and then kind of unpack why I hope that this becomes something that you guys will chew over too because I want us to hold each other accountable to finishing well. So he's talking about this, um, this need for a balance between change and, um, and constancy, and he gives the example of seasons. So seasons, we go, in, well, not here in Phoenix so much, but in other places in this world, uh, you go through four seasons, but every year you go through the same four seasons in the same order. So we get this change, but then we also have predictability. And so Wormwood, the head demon, is he is telling them that what you need to do now is to keep men from asking the relevant questions. He says, as far as I can see, the enemy wants, us to ask very, wants them to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now, if we can keep man, men from asking is it in accordance with general, no, if we can keep them asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? They will then neglect the relevant questions. And the questions they are asking are, of course, unanswerable. And that hit me really hard because I realized this is something we do. We get very caught up in, am I relevant to the culture today? Am I fitting in? And we let it creep even into our walk. And yet what God has called us to do is answer these very simple questions. Is it right? He's revealed that in his word. Is it possible? Is it how he's wired you? So it might not be possible for me to ever sing. <laughs> I try. But, but what is possible for me to do? Am I doing it? And then most importantly, is it the prudent thing to do? And I, am I submitting under this authority of God but as a loving father? As we've talked about him today as someone that is in a deep and intimate relationship and a partnership with me. And so in order to finish well, I think we got to continually be putting before each other a picture of who God truly is and being in love with him, falling in love with him over and over again and in relationship. Um, and that's, that's where I'm going to come from. And that's why I hope, I mean, I love doing this with my church family because I want you pushing towards that in me as well. Am I really thinking on the deep things? And so I hope we would all walk away with that and recognize this tension is there, but it's a good tension when it's balanced by us pursuing Christ. So one of the things that I've discovered about a lot of this is um, I, I know it's hard. I know we're all busy. I know we all have um, uh, very full schedules. But the ability to slow down and actually start having coffee with people and start unpacking some of these stories and start to really probe into other people's stories, not your own, not be concerned about getting your own out there, but discovering other people's stories like this, um, this is where we can start to do those things, like hold each other accountable and know each other in an intimate way, in a way that breathes life into us the way God did um, so that we can then be in relationship and be in relationships that matter, that actually do something for us. Um, 
this has been great, and, and it's been sort of a manifestation of so many of the conversations we've had. And I, and I hope it inspires you guys and the people who will listen to it on the, on the podcast as well to, as hard as it might be, to start rolling up your sleeves and just go and have coffee occasionally. Um, go and have lunch. Um, go and, and enjoy a happy hour somewhere with somebody. We're not a Baptist church, so I can say that. So um, wh- whatever that is, in order to start building relationships, I think that's really important. So I want to thank you guys for coming and, and uh, sharing tonight. Um, uh, Allison, I work with you all the time. Um, I felt like I wanted to ask you, uh, how would you change your boss if you could? But I decided not to. I could maybe ask Chad that, but... I know you're also working on some screenplays. I want to be able to pray for you in the midst of that because um, I think they're pretty good, and it's not just because we're friends. I, I really do think they're, they're pretty good, and someday I'd like to see that happen for you as well. So uh, let me pray for you guys, and we'll be done tonight. Again, thanks for coming uh, and sharing with us, and thank you all for coming and being a part of this tonight. Uh, Lord God, I just thank you for um, Chad and Allison, and, and uh, more than the relationships that I've been able to Uh, develop with them over these years, um, uh, which have been great, but more than that, uh, just their testimony of how serious they are about their relationship with you, about knowing who you are, about wanting to glorify you and enjoy you forever, and how that really is um, what drives them in, in everything that they do, in their marriages, in their relationships, for Allison with her children and her grandchildren. Um, both of them in their work. Um, They are literally dying to be able to live for you and to live for others. Uh, What a great testimony that is. I pray that um, you would bless them in these endeavors. Um, uh, I pray for, I know Allison's got a busy uh, schedule coming up, a son getting married and uh, all all these uh, grandbabies being born. Uh, So I pray for her and I pray for Sean and I pray for their family. Um, I also pray for um, Chad and uh, the work that he does, which is really important, and I know it's really hard uh, and can be very stressful at times, um, but also what his passion is, and that is writing and storytelling. I pray that you would bless that as well, and that it would be something that could be used to glorify you uh, as well. I pray for Melissa and for their marriage, um, and God, just what a blessing that's been as well. So. Uh, All these things we lift up to you. We pray that it would glorify you. We pray pray your blessings on them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.